Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 7th of March. It's Wednesday, and this is the Future of Education. And our special show tonight is uh, a panel discussion, a panel and a community discussion on Seth Godin's new book, Stop Stealing Dreams. Uh, we're delighted to have a really fun panel here. Lisa Nielsen deserves a shout out and some clapping. I'm hovering over the smiley face, going down to the applause and applauding for Lisa. Lisa really pulled this all together uh, and brought our guests here. Lisa Cooley, Pat Ferenga, Nikhil Goyal, Lisa Nalbone, and Lisa Nielsen. And you'll have noticed that there are three Lisas, so we'll do our best to keep them organized tonight. Future of Education is sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project, and we express our appreciation to Blackboard Collaborate for providing this service in the room. Coming up at the QNSD shows are our fifth anniversary unplugged events. These are all of the unconferency social media activities that surround uh, both of these conferences. Really a lot of fun. I finished up the Q website today and all day unconference on Thursday as well as uh, live stream sessions for anybody who's ever wanted to present and never been accepted or has something new to say. Go to ISTE Unplugged or Q Unplugged. We really look forward to seeing you at those events. They are a blast. This is the fifth anniversary as well of Classroom 2.0. A couple of fun projects. One is called Ed Incubator, helping um, currently PBS NewsHour develop a teacher advisory panel. As well, we are taking submissions for Classroom 2.0, the book. Everybody will get published. Uh, we're publishing online, and then we'll also have a printed version. Not everybody will get in the printed version, but um, it's a highly inclusive project, and we really encourage you to submit. Coming up, uh, some great conferences this year, worldwide free virtual conferences, announcing for the first time tonight the Social Learning Summit, which is going to be Saturday, April 21st, uh, in conjunction with Discovery Education. Um, we're going to tie this into the book project, but we're really looking for uh, all of you to contribute to join and to present uh, at the Social Learning Summit. Um, again, a highly inclusive event. Uh, we want you to present. Uh, the audience will get to choose who, to whom they listen, but uh, we sure want to give you the chance to tell your story. And then uh, we are uh, arranging dates for a gaming and education conference as well as the alternate education conference, um, uh, which Lisa and I are working on and is sadly behind, but it will come. We do have dates for the Future of Libraries conference, Library 2.012, October 3rd through the 5th. And uh, the Global Education Conference will be November 12th to 16th. Anyway, these are really a blast. Thousands of people from all over the world gathering together. You will have a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education on uh, March 12th, we're going to have a conversation with Mimi Ito, which should be a lot of fun. Kathy Davidson on the 20th, David Warlick on the 22nd. Alec Koros is going to talk about social learning on the 27th. Uh, Dick Dale is going to talk about appreciative inquiry and positive deviance. Howard Rheingold on his new book. You can see lots of fun coming up there, hopefully something that's of interest to you. We're scheduled out into July, which is just phenomenal. It also means that I'm stressing about busyness levels and not getting guests on as early as I would like, but it's a good problem to have. If you've missed any of our shows, they are all recorded in full collaborate versions in MP3 form. David Weinberger talked about his new book, Too Big to Know. 
incredible read, well worth looking at. Seth talks about it or references it in uh, Stop Stealing Dreams. Dennis Litke talked about big picture schools, which I wish had been mentioned in Stop Stealing Dreams, but uh, really well worth a listen. Kind of a life-changing interview for me. Alan Blankstein talked about the answer being in the room and uh, just a brilliant look at how communities of education are created at a local level. And much, much more. Lorette Lynn, The Unplugged Mom. Um, anyway, over 250 shows. Hopefully something worth listening to. So this is going to be your chance now to let us know where you're participating from. Look to the left of the map. You should see some icons now. You're looking for the second one down, the sun or the star. You click on that, and you click again, and then you click on the map. I'm in Austin, Texas, at the South by Southwest EDU conference. And feel free to shout out where you're participating from. Time, temperature, we have a little bit of rain today in Austin. Oh, thank goodness for New Zealand. This was feeling like a very North America-centric show tonight. A huge welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Feel free to keep keep posting in the chat there. I'm going to move us on. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for taking the time to do so. So this is really a fun event. Lisa, again, I'm going to I'm going to start with you because you, you really kind of pulled this together, and I want to give you a chance to talk about the resources that you've prepared that allow for discussion around this book. So why don't you take the mic, I'll try and follow along on a little bit of a web tour, and tell us uh, where conversations are taking place and what you've done. Okay, um, thanks so much. So huh, I'm interested to see this web tour. I did a few things when um, I saw that Seth's uh, Ed Reform Manifesto was written. I kind of saw it happening all over the different learning network areas I'm in, like Twitter and Facebook and whatnot. Um, Oh, that's funny. Somehow, something interesting is popping I up on my screen. I can't do Facebook because I forgot it requires a login. So I've put the link in the chat, but there is a Facebook group, and you can talk about that if you'd like. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So I'll start with the Facebook group. What I did um, when I got the when I started reading the book is I set up uh, in the very beginning introduction. Seth says that the whole point of the book is to promote discussion. So I set up a group in Facebook called, well first I looked to see if there was a group in Facebook called Stop Stealing Dreams and there wasn't. So I set a group up, I tweeted that out and asked people to join. And then I also set up a Google Doc for conversation about the book and that Google document is set up in all 132 sections of the book. And I think it was really brilliant the way Seth set that book up because you can talk about all these different conversations. So as I went through those 132 sections, I found, uh, and there's probably more than this, but I found I think about four major themes popping out, which were homeschooling, what can school boards do, um, the importance of youth voice in the ed reform conversation, and within that, I saw two different areas, which were higher ed and K-12. to So the next thing I did was I also began conversations in groups 
that hit all of those audiences. So I began a conversation in his homeschooling section in several homeschooling groups. And then I began a conversation in a school board member group about what he was saying about school board members. I began, oh, and that school board member group is called uh, the, the Radical School Board Members or something. Lisa Cooley could put the exact one in there, the exact name. That's her group. Um, and I also uh, started a conversation in the student union which is a group uh, head by Adora Svitek where students who are interested in ed reform discuss things. And I also start a conversation in UnCollege. And so in each of those places, really robust conversations were going on. And then I put a column in that Google Doc that I set up that has links to all the places that conversations are happening if people want to go ahead and participate in those various conversations. Um, in addition to that, I used Twitter to kind of talk about what was going on. So that was the, the strategy that I took. We had some amazing conversations. One of those turned into a blog post by Pat Ferenga. Um, and what was really cool about that is Seth Godin replied to that and commented as well. So we did, I think, achieve the goal of getting some conversation started, and I'm really excited to bring together uh, people that represent all those areas and hear everyone's thoughts about the book. So thank you so much, Steve. Lisa, anyway, you're really the the organizer of this show, so uh, special appreciation to you. Okay, so I thought it would make sense to start out. We, we you know, we are limited in time. Clearly, what we're doing is starting conversations that can be continued in these other places. And, um, and but hopefully, we were able to touch on some things of importance. And I wanted to make sure that each of you, as panelists, had a chance to kind of tell us um, uh, your response to the book uh, as uh, as a whole, and then to maybe call out. Um, something that uh, was a point you either really agreed with or really disagreed with to kind of begin the conversation. Um, and, and most of you are not going to be familiar with each other or the audience. So Lisa Cooley, let's start with you. Can you give a one uh, sentence bio background on yourself and then tell us how you responded to the book and you know, would you rewrite it or would you um, hand it out to people? And Lisa, you need to turn your mic on. Ah, uh, there we go. Great. Okay. Um, I'm a, a school board member uh, from Central Maine, very, very rural uh, area. I'm actually originally from New York City, came up here, um, and uh, a very low income uh, area. And I came on the school board about eight years ago and uh, just uh, spent some time really trying to uh, see how we can uh, make changes in how we do school. So I, it gradually uh, took over my life more and more over the past uh, eight years. Um, and in terms of the book, I, I, uh, I sometimes people say things about education in a way that imposes great clarity on what you're already thinking. And to me, that's what the book did, and that's why it needs to get out there and get passed around and get discussed because he's able to say things that we may be thinking or we may be saying, but they're say he's saying it a lot, just imposing this. this great clarity that, that, that lets the discussion move forward uh, by leaps. Um, so that's, that, that was my, my thought about my first read of the book. 
Okay, so go ahead and turn your mic off when you're done. I, actually, that's probably a pretty good way to start uh, the bio and the, and the brief overview. And then we'll, let's do that and go through. And then we'll come back and ask you to call out one point uh, of, of great uh, confluence or of disagreement. Um, so next, let's do Pat. Pat, would you turn your mic on and let us know about yourself and then your overall view? Um, I worked with late John Holt in 1981, and when he passed away in 1985, uh, he left the company to me and a board of directors that uh, I continued publishing the magazine, Growing Without Schooling, that he started in 1977 until 2001. Um, and I studied with, uh, or I guess you could say, uh, conversed with Yvonne Illich many times, and uh, many of the school reformers from the 60s, like George Dennison and Jim Herndon, who I met through John. So I have a, a, a strong background in alternative education and homeschooling and unschooling in particular. I'm also the author of a book, uh, Teach Your Own, the John Holt Book of Homeschooling. Um, what I uh, liked about Seth's uh, manifesto was his descriptions of the disconnect between jobs and education, uh, his description of college and how he was emphasizing uh, going through it in different scopes and sequences. Um, and also how so much of it is irrelevant today. Um, he's excellent at connecting and describing American cultural and business history. And I really appreciate his support for a movement that communicates and encourages passion. But um, I have to say, as someone who's been in the field a while, none of his ideas or observations about the nature and purpose of school are new. It's not like these haven't been proposed to the masses before, let alone to schools. Yeah, for instance, he writes, learning is not done to you, learning is something you choose to do, make school different, and so on. Now, of course, I support and agree with both, but so would most school reformers for like the last hundred years. Did it bother you that Seth didn't spend a little bit more time acknowledging and recognizing that, uh, or do you think that he's just lending his voice uh, to the conversation? That's a... a Today I learned something very interesting about the, the, the manifesto, and that's that it's actually part of this domino project that he's doing with Amazon. So when I read, again, you know, because um, I came into this, I mean, I was it was a leisurely comment I made on a Sunday morning of Lisa's <laughs> uh, discussion group that you know that prompted this. Um, but um, how can I put this? You know, my take is that. It, this piece was written both as a manufactured piece to generate conversation for Godin and Amazon's domino marketing study, as well as a sincere plea for a serious conversation about changing education. But when I realized this today, it really did change my feelings about it. I felt a bit manipulated. Now, my passion for teaching and learning is being exploited, unknown to me, as a marketing study. I want to say that I'm not very upset about this, though, because Gordon's thesis was driven home to me. This comment that I made about his manifesto that I dashed off when leisurely Sunday morning has gotten more attention than many things I spent days working on. It does seem like there's an interesting uh, dynamic taking place here. You know, in part, Seth's voice is, is large, and so his joining the conversation is really valuable. At the same time, uh, there are questions about whether or not the goal of uh, having everybody accept this narrative is realistic, or if this is this more thoughtful narrative is always necessarily going to be the secondary narrative and may be more useful seen as a secondary narrative. Let's come 
back to that and get your thoughts on it. But but next, why don't we go to Nikhil? And Nikhil, I don't know how your connection is, but you're either on the phone or you're going to use the mic here. Short bio of yourself and your overall perception of the book. Okay, I'm on the phone. You sound fine. All right, um, my name is. Okay, great. Um, my name is uh, Nikhil Glow. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a student at Sayafit High School in Long Island, and um, I'm, I'm interested in education because I'm writing a book on how we can revolutionize the way we educate our kids, and I'm offering uh, a unique student perspective on the issue. I, I really enjoyed uh, Seth, Seth's book. I mean, it was it's a it, it's a really great way to mainstream uh, what a lot of reformers are, are are trying to say. I especially liked his ideas on how we need to change this factory model of education, but the things where I, I see a little bit of a pitfall is, of course, he didn't he didn't mention a lot of the education reformers like that are currently trying to bring about change today, and um, of course he 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 has this little of a marketing sort of uh, side to it, and but I think it's a it's a really great way for people who are not necessarily in education and paying attention to exactly what's going on to really understand what's at stake and how they can pay uh, a close role, especially for parents that are um, at the center of this. And I've talked to a lot of students about this, and they really enjoyed uh, many of the many of the struggles he uh, he emphasizes in 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 the book, and how they can relate to um, many ideas. Thanks, Nikhil. That's terrific. I, um, both. Uh, Nikhil and Pat, or, or and even Lisa, if there are links that you would like to put into other content or material that you want to make sure that people are aware of, I think that would be valuable. Um, Pat, I'm especially thinking of you in terms of your work. Um, good to have it recorded. So uh, let's move on to uh, Lisa now Bone. So Lisa, go ahead and take the mic and tell us about yourself. Hi, thanks for having me today. Um, my big, my current claim to fame is that I am Dale's mom. Dale Stevens is the leader of Uncollege, the Uncollege movement. Um, I was a public school teacher, and I've been interested in in education reform and libraries and community work for a long time. Um, I thought that I agree with you. I I think that a lot of the ideas are not necessarily new. But I think it's a, for, a good format for starting lots of conversations and maybe more approachable to um, for some people who might not be thinking about these topics yet. Or, um, and then I, I think one of the themes overall that I was, uh, let's see, I'm not very, I think that his, um, even though he called for a reform, a lot of his ideas were still very top-down. And, and I think that the, um, with the, of course, I'm, we went from public school to unschooling, and then I have a child who dropped out of college to start the uncollege movement. So we've moved in a more radical direction of, of really thinking, and I really think that encouraging students to, to lead their um, to be confident enough to to reach out and do something about their own education is important. And it seems to me that even though he talks about addressing fears, in some ways there's still an overall fearfulness about letting, you know, just with his, his my sense was that his 
uh, fear of the was that line about every homeschool every parent being a, a failed teacher or not he didn't say it that way but um, anyway I, I do think it's great for generating a lot of conversation thanks Lisa I had the similar reaction to the um, homeschool section uh, and especially as a, uh, a parent but um, you know, to Seth's credit, I feel as though he's invited criticism, and so I think it's fair to kind of drill down on that, and I appreciate the fact that he's sort of been open to that. Okay, so Lisa Nielsen, we're back to you. Why don't, why don't you do, we didn't have you do your bio before, but let's have you do that and maybe an overall reaction. Okay, um, so I'm the author of Teaching Generation Text and creator and author of the Innovative Educator blog, and I am a educational administrator in New York City, um, and I love writing and speaking about ways to really empower our children to learn in the best ways possible. Um, my reaction to the book is, I this may have happened before, but I've never seen a book formatted this way, and I thought it was just a fabulous format to invite dialogue. Um, I think because I think this we're finally in an age where conversations about books can happen more easily on an international scale than in the past. So I think it's great timing for a book like this, and it really got my own thoughts flowing about what can be done. Um, something I would have appreciated, but perhaps this isn't where Seth wanted to go, was if he had put in some structures in place for discussion and even some structures where people could discuss with him and have him as part of the conversation. And like you, I also appreciated the fact that he invited um, disagreement and expected that to happen. So I think that was really great. Like many of the people who uh, gave feedback already, there were several points that he made that I agree with. Um, such as, you know, how school is working um, and it, in, that it's preparing students for the industrial age and in many cases, especially K-12, we're ignoring the fact that there's access information and we don't need teachers to perform the same roles that we've always needed them to perform. Um, some of the areas that I disagreed with him on is I still don't feel that he trusts children's desire to learn and follow their passions in the way that I've seen that exist with young people who were given that freedom. And I mean young people that are participating in an unschooling-like uh, living or in more of a free or democratic school type environment or big picture school. I agree with you 100%. It would have been much cooler in my mind to have him refer to or at least to add models like big picture, Sudbury, um, Nuestra Escuela, or any of those other amazing models, Reggio Emilia, um, that are, are quite different than what we're seeing in the mainstream traditional school environment today. But again, he was inviting conversation and the things that we write about in this book will get more attention. So I think it's a great opportunity to bring attention to the issues that we're passionate about. So that pretty much wraps up Thanks. my thoughts. 
Thanks, Lisa. So one thing Lisa and I have talked about is um, I have the domain bookdiscussions.com, and we were thinking that we might create a Ning network that allowed for threaded conversation on each of the sections. So be interested in the chat to get your response to that if you feel like it would uh, be one more distraction or if it would actually add and help the uh, larger conversation. I'm going to add my two cents here. Um, I, uh, my overall response to the book was much like Pat's. I kind of wish there had been some reaching out to people who had been doing this for a long time. Um, at the same time, I'm sort of deeply immersed in watching a kind of a corporate takeover of a lot of the educational technology reform movement. And I felt like the book did a really nice job of balancing uh, the, that messaging. Um, and I also felt like Seth did a really good job of uh, describing the interplay between uh, corporate interests and the school without resorting to um, kind of conspiracy theory. And, and, and John, when we get back to you, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. So now let's swing around one more time, and um, starting with Lisa Cooley, um, what's one part of the book that you sort of passionately agreed with or disagreed with that we could have a short conversation on? And again, I'm thinking here of about maybe a five-minute conversation with the community who are listening as well. What's one thing you'd like to draw out of the book that we could talk about? Well, uh, the thing that, that jumped out that uh, was something that I think about all the time um, and, and don't really know how to address it adequately enough. As Lindy says, and I'm looking at it, I can't think of anything more cynical and selfish, though, than telling kids who didn't win the parent lottery that they've lost the entire game. I have a lot of people in my community say, why should we spend all this money on education for, for the kind of education that kids should be getting from their, from their parents at home? If the parents aren't doing it, why should we pay for it? And it's frustrating because um, it, uh, there's just really no way of answering that because we're a community because our community benefits from from uh, from education and uh, it's just like why are we why do, why do we give kids free breakfast because they're hungry um, so that's that's something that I can actually use uh, when when people say to me why should kids why should we spend all this money. Uh, why should we uh, treat our schools as places where kids need to be taught things that they should have, should have been taught at home? And, and we get a lot of that uh, around here because it's a, it's a pretty low-income area. There's a lot of poverty. There's some drugs. There's some, there's some real problems. And in a rural area, you have the isolation uh, in addition to poverty. So that there's, you know, there's the, a lot of uh, uh, um, social difficulties here. And uh, people don't want to have to pay for what they regard as, as somebody else's problem. Um, so that's, that's one thing that what was really helpful to me, um, uh, it just in terms can of thinking gonna, about my own community. Can I springboard off of that, Lisa? So I'm interested in the, this question of how hard it is to make change. And what I heard in that um, same quote that you've just read, and, and I think Seth also says something like, how dare we tell people they aren't talented enough. Um, were the seeds of a larger narrative that could almost be like a civil rights movement. Um, do we need that level of cultural agreement and that kind of a large-scale movement to, to change the school system? And if we do, could that be the basis of it, the inherent worth of every child? Um, you know, this idea that no child should be told they're defective. Lisa, would that work in your community? 
and you're going to have to turn your mic back on. I'm okay. Sorry, got it. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I that I try to talk about all the time. I'm. I'm uh, uh, one book that I was very excited of over, about over the last couple of years has been The Talent Code because it shows the neurological reason why we are all born with an equal ability to grow intelligence. And um, and I, I, I believe in that, but you have to understand something about being on a school board. It's, it's, you, could, you could be thinking as clearly as possible, but you sit down on the school board table and what you feel like is you're in a labyrinth. You, you don't know where to, whether to turn right or left in order to get where you want to go. Um, I, and my, my partner, my colleague on the school board, and I see very clearly how we want to make change. And then we sit at the school board table and everything really changes. And, and you're faced with a bunch of others who are, we are all amateurs at education. And the administrators are the professionals. And all of a sudden, clarity for us uh, kind of disappears uh, as we sort of face with the obstacles of being um, trying to influence a large public institution. So uh, we know what we want. We want every every child to be treated as a learner and to be given the the uh, the freedom to become a learner. And uh, it's very difficult for us to say, well, the changes that you're planning are okay, but they're not good enough. Um, and we get told that we're moving too fast and things need to move slowly. And I think um, that we're moving too slowly because uh, kids are growing up and we have to make these changes as quickly as possible because kids are growing up and they're, they're gone and, and we have a great school to prison pipeline here in Waldo County, Maine. So uh, it's, it's just really hard to know uh, how to manipulate a big institution and if anybody knows how to do that, um, uh, shoot me an email. <laughs> So Pat, it's, I, I really want to go to you here because you've watched this for a long time and you've probably thought about it uh, for, for much more time than many of us. Um, what, would it, what would it take to change the larger narrative? Is it even possible to do so? And, and are there things about this moment in time that might make that easier? Well, I, I really feel that you know we keep waiting for for Superman, as the movie says, or the uh, the, the one idea, the one answer, the silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems of schools and education. And what I've learned over the years is that it's really you know a multiple. It's a lot of answers. We have you know there's got to be many different ways. And you know, and I, I am amazed at, at how school. Stops that dream. Um, you know, I share. Uh, I, I feel Lisa's uh, frustration because I've, I've heard this time and time again uh, of how hard it is to make make schools change. And of course, that's why John Holt came out um, in favor of uh, homeschooling. I mean, he, I believe he wrote this, but he certainly said it many times. He, he got tired of batting his head, at, going up to the plate, and striking out throughout the 60s and 70s. He said, "I want to do something that's going to change, you know, the way kids learn in our society." And he felt that he got on base with homeschooling. Now, it's not an answer for everyone, and you know, we've talked about that. But then, how do we apply, you know, pressure to an institution that, well, for instance, they won't listen to a lot of us because we're either students or parents or we don't have PhDs in education. Um, and then you know, you know, and, and, and it seems like we're just excluded from having having this um, participation just, just by the nature of. I mean, this is said it that the administrators just have a different take on it. So um, I, I, I'm not that 
optimistic about you know change within the system, although I'm very optimistic about people's resilience, people's abilities to find loopholes and work around the system. And um, there's many, many uh, different different avenues that we can take to help children learn. And I'd like to talk more about that, you know, when, when I come up about you know my my issues with the book. <laughs> I'll stop now. No, well, let's do that now because we're going to run out of time fast. So this is a, as good a time as any. I've put your, uh, I've put the, the the John Holt website up, and I'll put your personal website up. And why don't you just launch into what you want to talk about? All right, thank you, Steve. Um, yeah, essentially, I, I I don't think I think Godin does not go far enough in pushing the envelope of what it means to change our vision of education and what types of institutions we might need to support that vision going forward. He doesn't strongly consider that you can learn in places that are not school-like. The impression I get is that he just wants more innovative and engaging schools filled with team-building exercises and projects, but he's not interested in figuring out how to reintegrate children into society, how to get them out of schools and into different places and situations with people. The way children are part of society throughout history before the factory model of schooling dominated our lives. I think a learning society, not a system of schools, should be our ultimate aim for the future. This is the big idea I play with. What would a learning society look like? Um, Godin writes, as a citizen, I'm not sure I want to trust 100 million amateur teachers to do a world-class job of designing our future. Now, interestingly, he's not talking directly about homeschooling in that section, but it sure sounds like it. And when he does discuss homeschooling, he is very skeptical. It indicates a strong misunderstanding of the actual practice of homeschooling, akin to a recent dig I read that Homeschooling is akin to home dentistry. Homeschoolers do help their children learn to brush and floss, but when there's a cavity, they go to the dentist. Likewise, homeschoolers do help their children learn basic arithmetic, reading, and writing, and when they find they're out of their league, they go to a teacher, a book, call someone, and so on. This is on-demand learning as it's actually happening in real life. And it's getting easier to do with technology. And most importantly, I think Godin misses the fact that homeschooling and, and life is full of stories of, for instance, non-musical parents whose children become professional musicians. Parents who are not very literate in science, but whose children become scientists, and so on. His model of learning is not as broad and robust as it should be. And that, that's essentially what I wanted to say. Okay, so I'm interested if anybody else would like to chime in here. I mean, I think the points Pat has, has made occurred to many of us in reading the book. Uh, would anybody else uh, on the panel or in the audience like to respond? And I'm going to give Lisa Cooley the, um, well, uh, Lisa, you have the mic. Just turn your mic on. Hi. Um, in, I have... I believe in, in homeschooling. I believe in unschooling. I, I got into this because I wanted to find a way to do unschooling at school. I know it's ridiculous, but I, I really believe in the concept. The thing is that in my area, um, we, we, we have a lot of poverty, and it's rural, isolated poverty, and you have the parents who can't wait to get their kids on the bus in the morning and, and go do what they do. And I'm not putting them down. I'm really not. They, they're, um, they, they're not going to... Um, homeschool 
they have no no intention, and their kids are really suffering. Their kids may be uh, being harmed the most by what's going on in, in public school. Um, we we had an, uh, an expulsion hearing uh, recently where, I mean, I, without telling you the details of it, this was a kid that should have been homeschooled. He was having a terrible time in school. We ended up not expelling him, but um, boy, I, I I almost wanted to do that just so that we would make his parents make smart choices about what he should be doing. Um, they don't. They they're not able to. They they're not the, the parents who I think are the have the biggest difficulties. They they are just not able to. They don't want to, and they and they won't. So that's why, in my mind, we really do have to figure out a way to have kids kids become learners in the public institution. Um, it's our it's our responsibility to do that. Um, and uh, well, that's it, that's it for that. So the panelists clearly weighted, uh, you know, toward um, a homeschool and school model. And I, I mean, I think there's no, um, it would be no surprise that Lisa reached out to, to people in that arena. Um, I'm, I'm curious from those of you in the chat if there are more traditional views or if you would respond differently um, than, than Pat did in that circumstance or, or, or Lisa. Um, let's go to Lisa Nalbone. And Lisa, let's give you a chance not to respond because you raised your hand, but also maybe call out one really important part of the book for you. Thank you. Um, I I think that I think I think what Lisa Cooley just said. It's it's I think it's absolutely vital to change the system because because there are so many children who haven't won the parent award and and if we can if we can get more unschooling practices so that we can encourage children to be interested in their own education even within the classroom and and I think that's really possible based on my classroom experience um, and then given the unschool experience I think I think the issue of, of the institutional change is also really important and it's addressed slightly in the book um, and and like you said bringing I think you did do a good job of bringing up the the corporate um, Kind of the the corporate interests and the the institution that's so difficult to change are those are t two really big issues I think that we have to find a way to deal with because people don't like to change and 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 even at the at K twelve and at higher ed there's you know there's so much protection of of people's jobs and how they've always done it um, so I think there's a lot of fear on that level that is sometimes not as out front in terms of talking about um, it's a barrier for for doing maybe what's best for students at either k-12 or higher education um, and if we can find I mean Dennis Lipke's the big picture schools is a is a great model if we can find ways to get children more connected with the community and other mentors even if they're within the public school system then that's going to benefit everyone I think um, so I don't, I don't know if I did what you wanted me to do. <laughs> oh no, you're you're doing great, um, and I, you know, I am intrigued by this question of what, sort of what are the next steps. You know, if, if this is a secondary narrative, if this is sort of a John Dewey, John Holt kind of. Um, more thoughtful narrative that will always be in the background. I think it's a very different approach than you take if you if you have a desire to have all schooling change. And it's hard for me to see all of schooling change um, as e as it is. It's easier for me to see kind of small changes implemented locally. But is that enough? 
Um, and and let's go to Nikhil. Pat, I'm going to come back to you, but Nikhil hasn't had a chance to kind of do his passionate moment yet. So let's go to Nikhil. And, and while we do so, Nikhil, I'm going to bring up that website you asked me to bring up. Yes, um, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a really great discussion on homeschooling, uh, homeschooling. But what I see a lot, um, like in the book, one of the main key aspects, if you look to it, um, Rebecca Chapman, uh, literary editor of, of the journal, The New Inquiry, was quoted as, my whole life I've been doing everything everyone told me. I went to the right school, I got the right grades, I got the internships, and then I couldn't do it. Um, I think this is a really important aspect of the book because I've noticed that in society we have this idea everybody has to get the highest grades. We have to strive to have uh, sort of a quantit quantitative uh, advantage over everyone else. And what Seth says is that we're becoming more obedient, we're, we're, we're losing our creativity, and we're, and we're coming out of the system after 16 years, not knowing how to solve problems, not knowing how to think critically, and not knowing how to actually uh, perform well in the real world. And then a second part that I'm really interested in, as many of you probably know about the Coney 2012 campaign, is um, it wasn't, in the book, uh, Seth talks a lot about uh, passion and kids having a purpose. And what I noticed that, whether I disagree or, uh, or agree with the campaign, I've noticed that people and kids that are not necessarily able about what's going on in the world got so attached to this movement. They've tried to organize screenings. They've tried to find some sort of way to uh, bring awareness to this issue. And I've noticed that when kids have a passion for learning, and only then learning happens. And when they're motivated by something, then it happens. And we need to strive towards a model that really looks for students to take that advantage in education, have, have that role. Because, frankly, we, we, we have that lack of a student voice on this issue. And uh, a lot of students have some really great things to say. Uh, adults are often reluctant to listen to them. And I really think this, this is an opportunity. This is a prime moment because we've tried to reform education plenty of times before but we've never actually transformed this paradigm, this model, and we got to move away from this over a hundred, hundred-year idea that we need to prepare kids for factory, and we need to move to something much more grander, much more revolutionary. Because I always like to say, reform can't really do much. We have to have a revolution. We have to really change all the ideas on the table and put everything into question. Hello? We can't hear you, Steve. Oh, sorry. So I have, I have three questions. One would be, um, are, uh, aren't there still going to be some jobs that uh, do require that kind of compliance mentality? The next would be, um, are there, um, uh, isn't there going to be a desire uh, for organizations to actually promote that idea that those jobs are the most important uh, and those two sort of conflict with each other. And then the third is the one Lisa asked, which is, does, is it reasonable to think that every child can follow a passion or do we need a more balanced message? How, how would you respond to that kind of general questioning? Well, um, in terms of uh, the compliance jobs, I mean, one of the things I always like to say is that we, we're, we're seeing this entire middle ground where we saw a lot of these, where if you got out of college, or even if you just got out of high school, you would be an job and you would stick with that job for a long time. 
But now I think all this middle, all these middle jobs are being offshore, automated, and digitized. So we're either shooting for jobs right out of high school, or we have to get some more advanced sort of skills and try to reach for more innovation and, and value-based. Because all these sort of compliance jobs, like the factory work, a lot of factories are moving to China and India, and we're seeing this entire shift in the economy. And and we need to have those types of jobs because there was a really great statistic. I don't have the exact number on hand, but there's people people have to have an education that that helps them for jobs that haven't been invented yet. And we need an education system that is future proof, that teaches them skills and helps them adapt to what's going on in the world today. Okay, thanks, Nikhil. Does anybody from the panel want to respond to that? Uh, Norman, you're in the audience and you've raised your hand. I'm going to give you the mic, assuming that you want to say something. If you do, just click on that talk button at the top left. And you could have been clapping or thought you were clapping and hit that mic button. Okay, so um, I, th I think, Lisa, we're waiting for your passionate uh, response. Would you like to, to give one? You have to say which Lisa since you have three of us. I'm sorry, my internet slowed down so you I couldn't even get back on. But uh, Lisa Nielsen. Sorry, Lisa Nielsen. Okay, great. I felt like I had a couple passionate moments, so I wasn't sure if you were uh, referring to me. But just something I have been bringing up in the chat section that I guess I want to bring some attention to is a lot of the issues that we're looking at do stem from the fact that we are we have now turned into test prep factories in the schools. And what I would I have an impassioned plea for people to please stand up and speak up and act up for the rights of your children not to be brought into this test prep mania. You can opt your children out of tests. Yes, you will be threatened by all sorts of things, but what I believe is that parents and individual students own their learning, not the government. We need to take control of student learning from the government and give it back to the people. And I put in the chat um, different, I started a group in every state and how you can opt out of tests in your state. Um, there are states where they are much more concerned about a student's data than about a student's health and well-being. I have stories of children who had to be hospitalized because of what school was trying to force them to do and when they refused to take the test, um, the kids were kicked out of school. And I don't think you want your children in such dangerous environments if that is what's happening in your school. But in many states, there are ways to opt out. There is a group for every single state in Facebook. And I started a website which gives you the opt-out rules and procedures in every state. So that's my impassioned plea to get the billion-dollar test-making industry out of education and take back your right to learn. And the other thing is teachers were paid to know how to be professional assessors. We do not need to pay testing companies billions of dollars to do the jobs that teachers are trained to do. Thank you.
Okay, thanks, Lisa. So, Nikhil, you must have dropped off. I've made you back a moderator. So let's go. Uh, Pat, you've been patiently waiting. Let's have you come back and address whatever it is you'd like to address. Then, Norman, if you've tested your mic, we'll let you uh, try again. I just wanted to uh, go back to the point Lisa was making in a, about you know, parents who are incapable, for whatever reason, of homeschooling, and, and what about those kids? Because I think that you know, it's thin gruel to say school is their only option. I know that that's what you're, you have to, to operate with. Um, but I think we're, we really have to start thinking, like, we can't keep telling them to let them eat course credits. If this child needs a caring adult in their life who will sit down and play with them or just, you know, read to them or give them food or go for a walk, and, and that we as a society would trust that we could create places like this and people who would be staff such places or take such concern. That to me is educational because when a child is secure, then they're open to learning. But if, it, you know, if a child is, is, is not, you know, it, it's just going to fall by the side. So food, shelter, emotional support, play, these are all key things for, for kids. And, and I would like us to figure out ways to, to make that happen besides sort of this, you know, well, you're in school, now the bell's rung, and, and, you know, oh, you're still crying, well, maybe I could talk to the principal so you don't have to go in right now. I mean, we, we have to figure out more flexible structures to deal with exactly the, the issues that Lisa's talking about, because these, these are important. And um, I, I guess that's all I want to say, say on that. Oh, one, one last thing, though. But the opposite of that, you know, poor parenting, you know, I'm involved in an extreme of parental involvement in education. I mean, I, you know, we could probably find millions of, of reams of paper that say parental involvement in education is important. So my goodness, look how educators have reacted to parents getting involved in education through homeschooling. Um, I think that we really need to uh, calm down the rhetoric and accept that we, we're all in this together and that all these children are important to us. And that we can come to a solution together. We, sh you know, that we all have something of value to add to this conversation. That's it. Pat. So Nikhil is saying that he's starting a learning revolution. You've watched a lot of people get passionate about learning for a long time. Uh, what advice do you give Nikhil at this moment? What advice do you give those who really care about making a bigger change? I would say um, for for young people getting started that it's important to uh, be clear what you're talking about, but also not to be scared of your passion. Um, I, I think that it's a shame that you know a lot of people criticize the Occupy movement because they didn't have a leader and they didn't have an agenda and all this stuff. There were kids, kids. There were young adults who know that something is amiss, something's wrong. And they're, they're just calling our attention to it. They will eventually figure it out. So just getting started and in, in doing something and trusting your guts is, is, I think, important. And obviously, Nikhil has that power. And I think he'll share it, share it with others. But I also think it's important not you know, to look at what happened in the 60s and 70s and to try to learn from that, too, demonizing the opposition. Um, you know, certainly, authority figures like the police became um, pretty demonized, you know, the phrase pigs came up a lot then. And that really played against the student revolutionaries. And so I would like, like, I would advise a more measured tone in dealing with the adversarial approach. 
but um, in a society like ours that you know divides everything into Democrats and Republicans and black and white, the adversarial approach seems to be the way we have to go. But I think that there could be a, a more civil way of doing it, and I hope that our, our young children will show us because we haven't done a very good job of it. Norman, I've given you mic privilege. If you've run the audio setup wizard, to turn your mic on, you click on the larger talk button. Not the one with the red star, but the larger talk button. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, good. Um, my name is Norman, and the first, the very first thing we have to do, and we have it within our power to do, is simply abolish the classroom model. We don't have to have classrooms. We need learning spaces, and they can be anywhere. They don't have to be in a building with administrators and top-down rules and all of those kinds of things. And the most important thing we need to do is simply ask the student what do you want to know? Everybody comes, everybody wants to know things to make their life better. And it's the responsibility of people in the class, well, in the learning space, I can't get rid of the vocabulary myself, to connect what they know about to what the students want to know. And if they don't want to know about what you know, they'll leave, and they should be able to. The only formal thing we have to do is teach people how to read, to decode the message, to decode the thoughts that we share with each other. And we have to end this idea that school is a selection process where everybody proceeds according to, and I don't know who said it the first time, date of manufacture, how old you are. Um, and uh, it's how Karl Marx learned. It's how Albert Einstein learned. It's how um, Adam Smith learned. It's how Sam Adams learned. Uh, great. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Destroy the classroom model, make school non-mandatory, and simply share what you know with people who want to know it. That's Thanks, all. Norman. Thank so, does anybody from the does anybody from the panel want to respond to that? And I'm particularly curious how you get from that kind of impassioned rhetoric to actual practice. Is it something that Norman should just do in his own local community, or are there lessons from Seth's book here about a larger shift in thinking? Anybody want, from the panel want to respond? I'll, I'll just say, um, I can, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, fine. Uh, I'll just make a quick comment that I think that we're in a time today where social media is able to bring people together like never before, and the system thrived off of that. And based on what I was saying a little bit earlier, just in things like opting out, 
parents had no idea that they could even do it and they didn't know other people wanted to do it. And we can use things like social media to bring like-minded people together that never would have known the other existed and actually take action. So I'll turn it back over to Nikhil. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, we, we've looked at all these. If you study a lot of these movements, for example, I, I've studied the, the Chilean uh, student movement that's been going on uh, for the past few uh, past year, maybe the year. And what they what they came together in terms of how they organized was that they had discussions. And I really think that if I start when I start this uh, learning revolution movement, is that we need to have wholehearted discussions between communities, and then we need to nail down specific demands. Because without demands, I think we it cannot be effective. And just as just as Lisa was saying, we need simple an opt out campaign. Um, Yang Zhao, um, a really great education reformer, has said that if just six percent of parents opt out of their of their standardized testing in terms of the regime, then then the whole test data will become invalid, and they cannot use that to determine whether school is failing or succeeding. And this is just something very simple. Any parent can do this, and we've seen great great um great protests from Change.org and just so with just starting from the internet. And we can branch off from this and reach a whole new type of uh, people that are interested in the subject. Because everyone is, has some sort of task education. Whether you're a parent or whether you just finished out of the school system, you have some sort of idea of what needs to be done and, and your opinion on it. And we need to get those people that are disenfranchised out of the debate and put them back into the conversation. Okay, so we're about to wrap up. I want to make sure that each of you place in the chat some way to get a hold of you. So uh, either a website or a, an email address if you're comfortable with it, so that those who are listening can uh, respond to you or continue the conversation. Um, if you uh, felt like the chat flew by tonight, and of course it did, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the chat. And you can also do so when you uh, play the recording back later. And so um, the, the chat is not lost to you. Uh, here's somebody on the mic. That's up, did, was that you, Nikhil? Did you want to say something more? Uh, well, I, I'm just giving my email address, um, um, ngoyle2013 at Gmail. And just please please email me. I mean, I really want to start a conversation uh, with everyone on, on the table. I mean, it's, it's so important. Thank you again. So Nikhil, we still show you live in the session. If you're able to type that in, then then people will be able to capture it. Maybe you did, and I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, and if sure. not, maybe Lisa can put it in for you. Terrific. Uh, this has been really fun. Of course, there's no way in an hour to cover everything. But I, I want to express appreciation uh, to each of you for coming. Uh, Lisa, Pat, Nikhil, Lisa 2, and Lisa 3. Uh, really a fascinating discussion. Obviously, lots more to talk about uh, than can fit in an hour, but thank you for taking the time and for being here. Uh, I'm clapping for you, which I'm doing by hovering over the smiley face in the participant window and then going down to applause. I know it's hard to find. I apologize for that, but uh, thank you for coming. Thanks to all of you who have attended and for being here. Uh, the recording will go up uh, in a couple of days because I'm traveling and I actually have to be at my home computer to, to do that, but it will get up quickly. Uh, any final words from anybody? Oh, I meant to show our slide and I didn't. This is from Lynn Kazali, uh, who does this professionally, but it was a graphic recording of the book. And um, uh, Lisa, why don't you put the link to your blog post 
in the chat so that people can find this if I meant to bring it up and hold it up, but I didn't do so. Coming up again, uh, Mimi Ito on the 12th, and then Kathy Davidson on the 20th. Kathy is uh, quoted in the book, so um, should be a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Have a great evening. Most appreciated, especially to the panelists. Thanks for being here.